In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Inglestad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad here, as always, with my co-host, mental health advocate, and welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, Mike Gregg. Uh, Carter, that's a 70s show. That is an old reference that I can hardly understand. But I, yes, I'm back. Hello. Welcome. Glad to have you back, sir. I am glad. I am glad to be back. This feels good sitting in front of the mic. Good. You know, we obviously we had Christine here with us last week as we talked about uh, PTSD and welcome to Marwin. Thank you, Christine. We referenced a little bit about what's been going on for you. We'll talk about that throughout today's show. But Mike, before we do that, we we somebody shared a really interesting article in our Facebook group, and we wanted to talk about it because I think it's a it's an interesting sort of idea that I hadn't really given a lot of thought to. Oh, yeah, no, this one totally blew, like, um, came out of the blue for me, like something I had never even thought about. And uh, Hannah, one of our support group members, shared it. Got a lot of comments. People were talking about it. But it's from The Independent uh, in the UK, and it's um, in England. And basically it says, um, people with hidden disabilities like anxiety or dementia can now apply for blue badge parking permits or handicap spots, the government said. Department for Transport issued new guidance advising that people with unseen conditions could be eligible for the scheme, which allows them to park closer to their destination. And she posted it in the group, and people had opinions. Yeah, and, and I didn't have so much opinions as questions because I've, I've, never, I've never talked to a patient that you know, referenced, you know, it'd be really nice if I could park in the disabled spot. Like that's never even been a thought in my mind as a therapist that this would be something that a patient of mine would want. As someone uh, with a mental illness, I've never thought that for myself, but as someone who does DoorDash delivery, I have thought that a lot. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So for if you're a driver, it makes sense that this would be something that you'd be interested in. So I guess, and and it, I don't want to draw a distinction because, you know, one of the things we advocate for here at Pop Psych is that mental health is health, right? Yep. But when you say, when I hear you say in the article, anxiety and dementia, I hear anxiety and obviously I've worked with patients with lots of different forms of anxiety. I'm sure parking as close as you can to a building would be nice. But again, I've never had any patient sort of reference that being something that's important um, or even necessary for them. Whereas you said dementia and dementia, I 100% get. Yeah. You know, if people are having memory issues, if people are having confusion issues, you know, dementia can be really dangerous for people, especially for people who drive. So if we can set up a situation where, you know, that's as as least restrictive and, and inclusive as possible, that makes 100% sense to me. Absolutely. Um. But, you know, even in that thread, when Hannah posted that, I, I made a big post and, and mine was just um, a for example, like just imagine someone with extreme social anxiety uh, who can barely leave the house, maybe an agoraphobic. Right. Sure. And they got this blue badge and they were able to park up close so that alleviated the fear of finding a spot um, which might ease their way into the store to have a successful shopping trip or wherever they're at. And also have a quick exit if that was needed. So I absolutely understand it. And I don't disagree with it. But I'm also on the line with you of I've just never heard anyone ask for this to be a thing. But, but I think yeah. it's fine. Yeah. And that's not to say that we we think it shouldn't be a thing. Um, right. I mean, uh, you and I can probably both speak to how good it feels to get that first available parking spot. So, yes, yes imagine if you were someone who was agoraphobic and if that was a barrier for you that, yeah, this would be a big deal to be able to have that sort of one less barrier, one less thing in the way of having to worry about in just having to go to the doctor's office or just having to go to the grocery store like that would yeah. be that'd be a big deal. 
It would be a big deal. And even uh, just to think about it like this, my mental health issues have been ongoing for like 16 years. And if someone gave me a little blue card that said, you get something extra for all you've ha all you've dealt with. I mean, I might not use it, but I'd be like, all right, you know, it, it got me something. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a good point as well that I think, and when I think about patients that I've worked with, you know, if I offered them this sort of what it is, is a disability badge, basically, I mean, it's yeah. called a blue badge, mm -hmm. but that's what it is. They would, a lot of them would feel uncomfortable using it. Like, oh, I don't need this. Like, I'm fine. Yeah. The sort of like guilt and embarrassment, you know, if they, you know, parked there and got out of their car completely able-bodied. Right. And um, they're not limping or right. in a wheelchair. I think, yeah. You know, so I think it, it would take some time for our society to, you know, not judge that and not assume that that someone's just manipulating the system. But I think we both agree that it's something that makes sense for people that really need sure. it. Sure. Yeah. It might <laughs> the acceptance of it might just be a long way off. Right. Which is <laughs> where we're at with a lot of things, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, that kind of takes us into what we're talking about today. And that's um, splitting medical and mental in half and uh, knowing when to do what on what side. But before we jump into that, I do want everyone to know that we do have a mental health support and chat group on Facebook. You can join and talk with us and all the other members. And that would be to go to Facebook and search Pop Psych 101 Mental Health Chat. And also uh, to check the show notes of this show, we now have a support link for the show where you can actually um, give small sums to help us continue make this show. Obviously not necessary, but uh, anything helps us um, keep going and we would appreciate it. So let's get going. Let's do it. Prescribed to treat mood and thought disorders. Mm. Take these pills, check back in with me, let me know how you're responding and we'll make a follow-up appointment in a month. Why are you walking away from me right now? I looked this up, all right? I'm not just making it up for fun right now. Listen to me. You want to hear the side effects? Euphoria, fever, general feeling of discomfort and illness, headache, hyperventilation, irregular heartbeats, irritability, mom. This is it. It's making me crazy. Susanna, you have been on them for 24 hours. No, look, it doesn't matter, okay? They're, they're poison. They're toxic. Just take the pills. Okay? You want me to die? Take the pills for me. Do it for your mother. Take the pills! Give them a chance to work. Please. You know what? When I die, I want you to bury me right next to Granny. Bipolar? That doesn't sound right to me. Have you ever been trapped, lost in your own body, lost in time, so desperate to escape, to just get out? Susanna Cahalan is a 21-year-old woman quickly excelling in her career at the New York Post. She's happy, she's falling in love, and for all she knows, she's healthy. That is until Susanna suddenly begins to experience an array of health problems that are progressing at a breakneck speed and they're unpredictable. She shows signs of visual hallucinations, audio hallucinations, manic episodes, depressive episodes, paranoia, personality change, confusion, poor memory, and more. If it weren't for another symptom, the doctors and the hospitals might have written her off as bipolar or schizophrenic and located her to a more equipped facility. She was lucky enough, though, she also had the seizures. Due to the incredible hearts and knowledge of just a couple doctors, they were able to look past the signs of mental illness, run more diagnostic testing, and figure out the neurological dysfunction that was torturing her and her family. So yes, Mike, brain on fire. It's a hard watch. Yeah, it's a short one, but it's it is. It's kind of just like an intense roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Like it's all downhill. Yeah, because if you know the story and you watch the movie, you you know that she's obviously experiencing this very scary, potentially life threatening thing, and you're both, uh, for at least for me, I'll, I'll say 
I was experiencing this thing of like, why isn't she going to the doctor? Why isn't she going to the doctor more? Go to the doctor. <laughs> and then, and then the f- experience of, you know, I can't believe the doctors are not doing more or are not doing something different or trying something different, you know, to help this person who is so clearly it, suffering. Some of the stuff is bewildering and yeah. it, it gets to you. And which is why this is a story. It's why it's a movie. It's oh yeah, because for sure. These circumstances aren't unremarkable. It, it, it just hits a string and the right person was there to tell the story. Yeah. So you and I, we're going to go through the sort of development of Susanna's symptoms and kind of take a look at the, the sort of realistic aspect of why people thought this was a mental health issue. And then when it obviously very clearly transitioned into more of a physical illness, you know, and, and not a strict mental health issue. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're kind of just going to go down the line and talk about what you think about her progression of symptoms, what I think about them, um, and then we're also going. As you guys know, I was out last week and the week before. Obviously, I spoke on the show about how I wasn't feeling good, and then lo and behold, um, I I don't know if you hung out with Pop Psych, but I I ended up with this uh a thing called a, a phantom smell or a I hallucinated a smell <laughs> and ended up in the hospital. So there's some relation here. So we'll talk about that a little bit along the way too. Right. But um, so yeah, so this this starts off with Susanna Callahan, Cahalan. Cahalan. This she has the hardest last name to say. Yeah, Susanna Cahalan, um, energetic, just working. She's working at the New York Post. Yeah, she's intelligent. Years old. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's rocking it, right? She's yep. in like the best period of her life so far. Successful relationship, living independently. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of the dream for a young person to get, especially that quickly, to get out there, 21 years old, and you're already working at like a respectable place. And she 21 or 24? She's 21 in the movie. Okay. Well, I guess in real life, this happened when she was 24, but... Well, they needed to make her younger yeah, so that right. it was more dramatic. More empathetic. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a big difference there, those those three years. It is. <laughs> anyway, so she has a, she has a boyfriend, Steven. Uh, he plays music. Where he sings the same melody, melody never changes. <laughs> Sorry, that's what I noticed. Um, he works at a record store. She has a dad who barbecues, and <laughs> her parents are divorced, right? Yeah, they're separated. Yeah, separated. Um, he was in banking, changing careers. Anyway, so she's she's got a, a an average family, an average thing happening around her. Um, things to be going pretty pretty good. That is up until her twenty first birthday, which is where this kind of starts taking place for her. So the first thing we see, she's sitting at a birthday cake with her family about to blow out the candles and she kind of just stops. She stares off and then she looks very uncomfortable. Confused. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Confused. But you don't really see anything. You don't hear anything. Uh, and then her family kind of have to go, hey, what, what's going on? What's going on? About the candles. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, nothing. Nothing's going on. And then she leans in to blow out the candles. But doesn't really have the power to do it. So they all help her blow out the candles. Nothing thought of it after that. Yeah, Mike, I mean, I don't know about you, but that that's such an interesting symptom, a unique symptom. Uh, I, I think the thing I was frustrated with, with this, and well, there's going to be a lot of stuff, but, <laughs> you know, even Susanna kind of passes off a lot of her symptoms as she's just stressed. She's just tired. She and and her then her family and then her doctors do too. But that initial thing of, you know, I spaced out and then I was unable to blow out candles, like that seems serious to me. Yeah. You, you know what it looked like to me was it looked like a panic attack. If I was sure. going to like, sure. Like that's how I would initially, like if I had a panic attack, I would go like almost catatonic where I would have a hard time talking, especially blowing air out. Um, mm-hmm completely zoning out. So that's what I thought. I'm like, she looks like she's having a panic attack. Yeah. And for me, you know, whether it be panic attack or even, you know, eventually her symptoms develop into seizures, you know, there's a type of seizure, which is basically like a seizure. I think it's called like in absentia, which is basically like just a a frozen silent seizure. So you don't have the sort of typical like freezing up and jerking, but you just sort of uh, freeze. And it's like you kind of turn off for a period of time. Ryan, where were you when this happened? Because you just would have been solved so much faster. Well, yeah, but I guess, and and, <laughs> and that's why maybe I was frustrated because it's like, if you've never frozen and and spaced out and been unable to breathe and, and blow out candles, 
you would think that would be something to, I don't know, communicate to somebody, anybody, you know, even just in passing to your boyfriend. Oh, yeah, it was so weird. I was going to blow up my candles. And then I just spaced out for a couple seconds. Like, yeah. oh, that's weird. Maybe you should go talk to somebody about that. But that can also just seem so like maybe you were stressed. That's what they always say. You're stressed. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, that's that's the problem. And we're going to come back to this. But yeah, so let's let's yeah. move on. That was her first symptom of, of many. Yeah. So the next thing that we have is she goes to work at the post. Um, she's got like a really great friend there. They're hanging out, talking, goofing around. So she gets called into the office of like, I don't know, what are they called? The chief. Sure. Yeah. She goes into the chief's office and who's giving her a job, you know, she goes out of it again while she's getting an assignment. And he's like, but he notices, like her family didn't notice quite as much. What's going on? She says, she needs a second mm-hmm. uh, and then starts coughing. <coughs> Movie sign. Yep. Something's wrong. Yeah. Right? I was expecting blood to come out in her hand because that's the <laughs> like the stereotypical thing. But yeah. So here so here we're we're basically witnessing the same thing that we saw at the birthday scene, right? Yes. Nothing's really progressed. But then later that night is when we get the first progression. And that would be, and this is one of the ones I was really interested in hearing what you had to think. Remember, we're not going to bring medical stuff into this till later. Right. She goes home or she gets on the train to go home and at home, she starts hearing whispers. Mm-hmm. So auditory hallucination, um, can't concentrate and can't fall asleep. Yes. So I'm wondering for you, someone comes into your office and they say those three things. I hear whispers. I can't concentrate. I can't sleep. Where are you going with that? I mean, so, so that's a very serious symptom. And this is going to be a theme. I'll say therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists. We don't want to immediately jump to, oh my gosh, you're schizophrenic. Mm. So we we want to, you know, I think come to the 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 sort of least restrictive, most logical in the moment diagnosis. So, you know, if someone is experiencing hallucinations, but it's the first time, maybe this is the first time they noticed it. Okay, well, let's monitor that and let's monitor mm-hmm. your mood. And, you know, I wouldn't rush somebody onto medication. I wouldn't rush somebody into, and certainly not into a psychiatric hospitalization. You know, let's let's keep an eye on this. Let's make sure our, what we call ADLs or activities of daily living, so that's sleeping, eating, you know, exercise or whatever coping skills you have. Make sure those yeah, especially are sleep. on point. Yeah, absolutely. And if they're not, that's when we start to kind of pay closer attention to the sort of seriousness of these symptoms, because hallucinations are serious. They're a sign that something is, is wrong in your brain. It is. And uh, it's very scary. Yeah, I can so, tell you. So to answer your question, I, I wouldn't, based on those symptoms alone, I would not be rushing to, you know, an anxiety uh, diagnosis or a depressive diagnosis even necessarily. You know, the initial thing would probably be something along the lines of an adjustment disorder, which is to say, okay, you're under a lot of stress right now, you know, uh, work pressure, family conflict, you know, so there's enough there that we might, we might start there basically. Right. And and can I see you in a couple of days? Yeah. Oh, no question. Yeah. 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 Okay. So can I see you in a couple of days? So Susanna leaves your office. It's the next day and maybe the day before you see her again. Um, That next day she's distracted and having memory problems, but then she starts doing this thing where she starts isolating herself. Uh, and she's not answering people's phone calls or talking to her boyfriend and basically not engaging outside of her own little world. In that same area of time, she starts getting bitten by bed bugs, only to find out that the bed bugs aren't real. So these sort of three things, she comes back to you to the next day. Okay, I had the hallucination thing, but now I'm distracted. I have memory problems. But she doesn't um, know that the bug bugs are hallucination. Like she's very convinced that she has them, even so much as points to where she thinks the spots are and nobody else can see them. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess only we know that. Right. So she might she might identify it as I have bed bugs. Look at these bites. Right. So she comes in and says all these things and and points to her arm. So now you've got to add all these up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and this is when we start to get into medical versus mental health, because if she feels like she has bed bugs, I'm not going to sit there and tell her that she doesn't. So, you know, I might uh, talk to her about, okay, if you feel like you have bed bugs, have you had an exterminator in? Also, have you seen your primary care physician to discuss these symptoms? Because if you've had yeah. bed bug bites, that might lead to other symptoms. And that, you know, 
Because if she doesn't feel like she's had a hallucination, I'm not going to tell her you're making these bed bug bites up. I'm not going to tell her that. Why, why would that be? Like, why would you not call out a hallucination? So uh, let me put it this way. I wouldn't identify it to her as a hallucination. If she said, look at these red spots and I and it, the skin seemed perfectly fine to me, what I would reflect back is, Susanna, I want to be honest with you, I don't see any red spots. Now, that doesn't mean that you have or don't have bed bugs. It doesn't mean that you are, are hallucinating this, but I want you to know that I'm not experiencing what you're experiencing. I'm not seeing what you're seeing. So okay. we, it's sort of like a gentle introduction of the possibility that what she's experiencing is not her reality. Okay. So I wouldn't come out and say, like, you're making this up, or this is not real, or you're hallucinating this, or this is all fake, because... You know, you, you don't want to have a patient because this is what Susanna does in, in a couple of scenes is makes the conclusion that she's bipolar. So I don't want her to make the conclusion that she's schizophrenic or make the conclusion that she's in a manic episode because as we find out that's not really what's happening. Yeah. And that can be harmful. Yeah, exactly. So my first instinct, especially when there's sort of medical adjacent symptoms is have you seen your primary care physician? If you feel like you have bed bugs, have you had anyone out to the house? And it's interesting because one of the later hallucinations is she thinks her faucet is dripping. She hears a dripping faucet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and if that were the case, I would say, OK, you know, can you have someone come over and check it out? And she does. She has her dad come out and he doesn't see any dripping. And she's like she's like angry about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty typical for someone who's hallucinating something because to them, it's not a hallucination. It's this is my experience. I hear it dripping. It must be dripping. Why don't why don't you hear it? Speaking right there, if you want to talk about the whole smell thing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, the other day or last week or two weeks ago, whatever, um, I started smelling a smell that wasn't real. We found out, it, I mean, it just, it wasn't here. I was the only one smelling it and it was pervasive and huge and potent and stomach turning. And uh, I can't even explain the smell, but when it was confirmed that it wasn't real, I lost my damn mind. I didn't know how to handle that information. I ended up getting a hold of a nurse practitioner that we know, Ryan, because I couldn't get a hold of a nurse here in town quickly enough. And right. she helped me like, here's when you should go to the hospital. And then I just full panic attack ended up in the hospital. So yeah. I understand if you figure out and, and someone tells you, no, I don't hear that. Just like someone told me, no, I don't smell that. Mm hmm. Anger isn't even the word. It's right. um, it's just a loss of everything. I would say. Well, yeah, because all of a happening? sudden, all of a sudden, your reality is being thrown into question. Yeah, yeah. What's real? It, yeah. It, and then you're like, "Am I dying?" It's just a sure. whole array of things you can't handle all at once. You mm -hmm. know. Yep. Okay, so she goes. She starts uh, adding on symptoms as we go. She's going in back from her work to her apartment, back to work. Um, but the things that start getting added on are. More auditory hallucinations like the the dripping, but now she's seeing visual hallucinations, tracers. Um, that would be like if you saw someone's hand waving through the air, you see like 16 hands wave behind it. Bright lights, her, yeah. Yep. She starts becoming late to work. She Her joints are hurting. She's just not there anymore. She goes to a really big, important meeting and basically uh, gives them an Irish goodbye do you know what that is? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's when you leave and you don't tell anyone you're leaving. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she just disappears. But this is kind of the beginning of where we start the doctor's office. This is when they're like, you got you got to go to the doctor. If it hasn't happened already. Yeah. Geez. No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. All this stuff happens over the course of like a week and, and she hasn't gone to the doctor. Anyway, right. so we go to the doctor. She tells him her symptoms. Um, she always, though, is doing this backtracking thing and trying to justify why these symptoms are happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to ask you right there, therapy patients, do they do that? Do they Are they backtracking their symptoms and always like, well, it could be this and I could be having anxiety because of that? Yeah. So we don't call it backtracking. We just call it denial, <laughs> which <Okay. laughs> comes in a lot of different forms. You know, there's there's minimizing. It's, oh, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, just some, you know, some passive suicidal ideations. No big deal. Like minimizing something that's very serious. Oh, gosh. Yeah. There's a sort of justifying, which is, 
oh yeah, you know, I haven't been sleeping and, you know, sometimes I feel numb, but I've been on a lot of stress at work. Like there's a reason why this could be happening. Like, yeah, no, no, that's justifying. Um, and if you, if you Google like a list of different forms of denial or different forms of cognitive distortions, it's fascinating to see how people will make their situation that from the outside looking in seems like this is a problem, but for them, they make it okay. So she talks to the doctor and it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, I just got out of college and my family's going through a lot and, and, and works hard. Yeah. So that's all. That's all that's going on. You know, it's stress, Ryan. Yeah. And it's just it's it's sad for me because to answer your question, yes, I absolutely have had patients that have minimized things that have been very serious. And then it's my position to gently offer how serious it actually is, because it's not it's not that I want to freak them out or mm -hmm. to, to have them be upset, but it's to just to say, okay, you know, you're experiencing this symptom and this is a new thing. You were not suicidal or not getting less than two hours of sleep, you know, a week ago or two weeks ago. So that's a big change. Yeah. It's a mood shift. So yeah. it's like, if you don't call it out, how are you going to figure it out or work on it? For sure. Yeah. And, and for, in Susanna's case, how are we going to understand what symptoms she's experiencing? It's not just stress, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So the doctor goes ahead and orders an MRI. Hooray. Right. Finally, after all this yeah, time. Hoping that they're going to find something basically. Yeah. yeah. The doctor says he's sort of expecting, what do you say, a stroke or a heart attack or a stroke yeah. or brain hemorrhage. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes back normal. No mm -hmm. stroke, no clot. Right. So this is when the movie shifts from we're seeing this happen to somebody. And because we already know what the movie is kind of about knowing she's going down this trail of, a, of this health problem. Um, but this is where the, the movie really shifts into our world, I think. And that's because her MRI is normal. The doctors start treating her differently. So after the MRI thing, you know, she just continues on. It's a clean MRI. She doesn't, I guess she doesn't worry. So she goes back to work. Um, she gets this huge like senator write-up gig, but then she starts hallucinating at work starts acting socially inappropriate right there. She loses the interview as she's interviewing the senator, actually, uh, and then falls down. Yep. This is also when she has a seizure. And back to the hospital we go. Yes. And there's a whole, you know, around the seizures, there's a whole interesting dynamic happening with one of the seizures that she has over around this time is at night with her boyfriend. And her boyfriend mm -hmm. sees her have the seizure. He rushes her to the hospital you know, because she's had this normal MRI, she basically tries to tell him, like, I'm fine. I need to get out of here. Like, this is this is too much. I just need to go home. And then her parents are very upset that she's been taken to the hospital and that the boyfriend didn't call her, didn't call, call the parents until the next day, oh, something yeah. like that. Yeah, the dad's like screaming. Yeah. Yeah. So you start to see the, the impact and the, in some ways the breakdown of the family structure and the family support because they're also trying to understand the symptoms that Susanna is experiencing. Absolutely. And I had big issues with this scene because a few things happened. Um, she just had a seizure. She's in the waiting room, waiting and waiting and waiting. Like she has a cold. Yep. She's so upset. She says, they're not going to help me. And that's just like for anybody mental side of it, health side of it, like the feeling of helplessness when the professionals when you don't feel like they're they're trying to do anything for you is um this is an insurmountable feeling of helplessness and then they they checked her out and then gave her no reason for the seizure and sent her home you're fine so it's just like i just don't know how would you not be like okay you got to be checked in we got to monitor you for a while so, um, yeah. So, and, and I think this is the point that I have not, I'm not going to come to defense, but I'm, I'm going to ask, ask you some questions okay. because I think this is the, the difficulty that the movie's trying to portray. You know, obviously we're being very sympathetic towards Susanna. You know, we want sure. her to get more help, but I think the reality is, and, and this is also just the way the medical system works and insurance works is what would the justification be for admitting her to the hospital? The fact that they don't understand why she had a seizure. Yes. Okay. I mean, in my, in my mind, yes. Like, 
a 24 hour monitor that will she have another seizure, you know? Sure. Ho hook her up to, you know, those brain things. <laughs> yeah. That they eventually do. Yeah. 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 And I guess, um, you know, yes, I think in a perfect world, if someone has a serious medical symptom like that, that we would keep them overnight, we would keep them for 24 hours for monitoring. But and this is where the breakdown of the medical system happens is like, all of her other tests are normal. They her blood pressure is normal, her her, basically everything's normal, everything that they could possibly evaluate, it looks exactly the way it's supposed to. So when they are determining, do we admit this person? Or do we say, basically, come back if you have another seizure? You know, they're left with that decision. And and to give some behind the curtain insurance insight, you know, if a, if a provider has to justify, let's say, admitting someone to the hospital, they have to communicate to the insurance company the justification for that decision. And if the right. justification is we don't know what's wrong, then that might put the patient in a really difficult posi position where they might be stuck with the bill of like, well, yeah. this was not medically necessary. And yet. You did this. So here's the bill for your overnight stay. Mm. So, you know, hospitals are also inclined to try to protect the patients as much as they can, not give them unnecessary bills. So you're saying it's not necessarily they don't want to help you. Exactly. But they're like, your insurance ain't going to pay for this. Right. And you're going to be paying for it. Right. But time. if she has another seizure and they bring her back, then that's fully justification for, again, running all those tests. So that's basically the way the system works is if you have another emergency, come back to the emergency room. But if we can't find anything specifically wrong to admit you, it's really hard to justify it. So and, and look, I'm, I'm as frustrated as you are that that more tests weren't done or that more, you know, investigation wasn't done to kind of solve this problem quicker. But yeah. it's just it's in some ways it's an impossible situation. Agreed. But this is this is the area where I really wanted to talk about why this scene particularly hit me in the anger button. Sure. Uh, and that's because when I went, so when I went to the emergency room, because I was, I guess they're called olfactory hallucinations, mm -hmm. Yep. you know, phantom smell or whatever. I know this sounds insane. It sounds insane. It's not. It's, uh, it, it's just it was, a different sense. It's absolutely real. I could not believe it was happening. Um, but I started having a panic attack and, and I go to the hospital and I have 155 heart rate, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but I'm also having intense tremors, like my hands are tremoring oh, sure. and my yeah, feet yeah. are tremoring. Mm -hmm. But I take lithium because I'm because I have bipolar. So lithium, one of the symptoms is tremors. Yep. So they can't take that into account, even though the tremors seem to be shaking quite a bit more than normal. Um, they also see that I'm on a lot of meds for psychiatric issues. And so the smell thing is completely written off. It's, they gave me a CAT scan, okay? But I was just like, you can't keep me here for 24 hours and make sure I don't die. You know, I was worried yeah. about my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they said, go see you were still you were still experiencing the hallucination even at the hospital? Yeah, for three, like three days after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the next part of that story is, so I was angry about that. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, the anxiety just ramping up like crazy because you're like, you know, what if I am Susanna in this situation? Sure. And and they're not finding it. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, I had not seen the movie at this point. Right, right. <laughs> That's, this is why I wanted to do this movie because yeah, it just yeah. hit me like this. But I went and saw my PCP and we went in and I brought both of my sisters with me because in this, I, they're bigger advocates for me than I am. I went in saying I was going to ask for an MRI, right? I just need to know. I need to make sure I don't have like a tumor or something. I had a friend who ran at my age, randomly had a tumor. Bless him. And I'm just like, got to make sure, right? Sure. So she's in there. First thing, I, I tell her about the smell. And then she reads off the list of my meds and she's basically done with it. Mm. Right. Um, even though I talked to my psychiatrist and no interaction in my meds would cause a smell like that or, or smell hallucination like that. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I, so here's where it gets me and this is where it, it pisses me off. I said, she goes, what would you like me to do? And I said, I would like an MRI. And she looked at me and said, well, this isn't Hardy's. Yeah. And then I just shut down at that point, you know, and my sisters did the rest of the talking. Yeah. So look, so that is an important distinction. And this is also something that happens to Susanna is that 
Within the medical system, yes, there are limitations, but empathy is really an important thing. Yeah. It, you know, being able to listen and and empathize with a person who's struggling in whatever fashion they are struggling and and to communicate in a way that helps them understand what you are capable and not capable of doing goes a long way towards yeah. you or Susanna accepting the limitations of the situation. Absolutely. Now, for it does. Them, yeah, for them to say, you know, this is not Hardy's, it's like, all right, well, you don't care about me, so I guess right. I need to go somewhere else. So, yeah, that I mean, when I dropped my head then, yeah. that's when Brooke, my sister Brooke, spoke up and said, this is a real thing that he's smelling. All he needs is somebody to believe him. Yeah. Please believe him. This is real. And whether real means... I'm hallucinating because of a mental illness or because of a tumor. Either are real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. So just to get past that part, like, um, I, I just wish they would treat people a, a little more seriously when they're worried about their own dang lives. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, Susanna in, uh, Susanna, the real person in an interview, because this is obviously based on her actual experience you know, was asked, you know, what advice she has for people who experience this sort of dilemma of, you know, doctors are not seeming to care or invest any time in my very serious situation. And her advice was to get a second opinion. Now, that's not always an easy solution for people. But if the experience you're having with your doctor is either very unempathetic, or in Susanna's case, they're telling her that she's partying too hard, or that, you know, yeah, it's just stress or it's, it must be alcohol. It must be alcohol withdrawal. Yep. It's like, okay, this person is seeing it for whatever reason through this lens. I need to see somebody else. Yeah. It, it, yes, exactly. They're, they, they, this person isn't on my side. Like you can be on someone's side, whether or not you like completely agree with them, you can still be their advocate and try to do the things that are necessary to either put them at ease or figure it out. Yeah. Okay, so Susanna <laughs> continues down this path of getting worse. She starts getting manic and jumping from idea to idea and screaming and leaping on desks and things like that. This is kind of when they introduce the psychiatrist person who she tells him she's bipolar, I think is what happens. She does, yes. Although it's not clear in, in the sort of real life if, if she told the doctor or if the doctor told her. There's, there might be some adjustment there from real life. Yeah. So either way, they just start saying she's, she's got a mental illness mm -hmm. and that's what this is. And they go down the pathway of bipolar, um, a paranoid schizophrenic, psychotic. They go through all these things. They put her on meds. At one point she says she has multiple personalities. Like it's clear that she's looking for an answer as well as just as much as the doctors are. Right. Right. And, uh, the point I wanted to get to is it finally, after all this stuff, and these doctors just writing her off. And one specifically saying, we're going to have to get you moved to, to a place that can better care for you. Well, so that's after she gets hospitalized. Right. right? And, but but do they think that it's a mental illness? Yes, that they, they feel like she would be more appropriately cared for in a psychiatric institution. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. That kind of stuff just gets me. <laughs> Yeah, well, so again, you know, to come back to the sort of, I don't want to feel like I'm just defending the doctors here, but, you know, the doctor in the, you know, once they do hospitalize her, the doctor attempts to communicate with her. The doctor attempts to to work with her, to run some tests. And, you know, obviously she's experiencing a lot of symptoms. She doesn't communicate. She, I think, tries to run at various points. Yeah. And so she's treatment resistant, right? Yeah. Now that doesn't excuse the doctor's... Uh, seeming lack of empathy at times, but, you know, it puts the doctors in a difficult position to say, okay, you know, this patient doesn't want to be here, won't comply with any of the sort of tests that we're trying to run with her. Right. So what are we supposed to do? It, it just says to me, because these doctors can't, they can't figure it out, right? No. So they say it's a mental illness. And to me, that just says, so what does mental illness mean to them? Hmm. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, it to the to me that says, oh, it's not a real thing. Go to that other place where the not real stuff is happening. Yeah, I guess uh, you know. To me, it didn't so much feel like it was like this is not a real thing as much as a like 
as it felt like this is not an us thing. Like okay. this is not this is not something that this hospital is uh, best suited to treat. Yeah, yeah. And that might have been true. Now they eventually get the specialist in through through seeming happenstance, you know, and, and obviously we'll talk about that. But, you know, it's it's a difficult situation because if they can't again, they're running whatever tests Susanna is, is complying with and all those tests are coming back normal. So all they're seeing is, I mean, if we're being honest, what they are seeing are what feels like mental health symptoms. Yeah. You know, so it's it's just a difficult position for a doctor or a psychiatrist to be in. I, and I would agree with that. And and we can kind of get to where the reason that it, it riles me up so much is they do find the right guy who sees it happening. Now, it does. She finally goes kind of like catatonic to where it's very obvious that something neurological is happening. Yes. And one of the um, one of the other doctors goes to an old teacher of hers. Uh, he says, oh, I'm, I'm just teaching. You know, they do that whole scene where yeah. he's reluctant, but she gets him to do it. And he comes in and he was like my favorite character in the whole movie. And he finally had this sense of I'm here for you. And and they figure it out. Right. That's that's basically the movie. They figure it out. She talks about how she has to go through all this. This recovery and just how insane this ordeal it was. But but what I wanted to get to at this point was what was sad for me at the end of this was seeing her, and I'm happy for her, 100,000% happy for yeah, her, yeah. I'm so happy for her, but seeing her have her thing found and taken care of is sad because a lot of people with mental illness, that's their golden ticket. That's that's what they want. They want something to be easily fixed, easily solvable. Yeah. They want you to find that thing in their brain that's just been screwing them up this whole time so they can get back to normal. Mm-hmm. So their lives can start. Now, to be to be fair, it does take her a year to, like, relearn how to walk and talk. Yes. Like, it's not just they flip the switch of medicine and now she's fine. Like, it does take some time. But, yeah. No, I totally get what you're saying. Yes. It, yeah. It wasn't a house episode. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> they walk out like, see a house. But, you know, and, and this whole story for me, if you take away the ending part where they find a cure, this whole story for me is every person with mental illness's story. It's going into the hospitals and thinking something's wrong with you until finally every test has been ran. I think some people go through this. I did. Every test has been ran to off. They're like, you do you got to go a different route. You got to talk to somebody else. Yeah. And the whole time you're just kind of hoping, you know, it's like a cyst or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. That there's just something that you can take out of your brain and everything will go back to normal. As you said, I think that's yeah. something that a lot of people can relate to. And, and to sort of, to clarify with the story, I mean, it turns out that she has Mike anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. All right. Whoa. <laughs> which Yikes. is, right, right, which is um, autoimmune disorder, a rare one. You know, when I read, um, you know, the backstory, apparently less than 300 people uh, in the world have ever been diagnosed with this particular autoimmune disorder. So one of the things that I was frustrated with at the end of this movie was in a voiceover, Susanna says something to the effect of, you know, I wish not everybody, I wish people didn't have to go through this, that there was just sort of one simple test that they could find out. And the reality is that there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't yeah. one simple test because if there was one simple test where you could run it, you know, for every autoimmune disorder, we would be doing that. It just so happened that she met a doctor that was an expert on this particular autoimmune class of disorders. It gave her a random test where draw a clock and she drew a clock and half the clock had numbers and half of it didn't, which told the doctor that basically half of her brain was on fire, right? This is what the title yeah, of movie is. You said it. Yeah, uh, there it is. <laughs> um, essentially inflamed. And then they were able to confirm that with a, a brain biopsy. But now like those tests are not going to be things that they run on just anybody. So I think the thing that was frustrating for me was just like, oh, like, what's wrong with the medical system? Like, why don't we just have a way to solve these problems so much quicker? And the reality is, is that, you know, there are probably I don't I don't I'm literally I have no idea, but 
hundreds, if not thousands of different kind of problems that can go wrong with our bodies and brains. I know it's it's so scary and it's impossible to, you know, no one's just going to say like, you know what, we should run that brain biopsy for anti NMDA receptor encephalitis. Like that's something that would happen in a house episode. Like that's not real life. Yeah. Well, it could have been lupus. Right. Yeah, that's the other sort of classic <laughs> thing. Yeah. But now now could they have done a brain biopsy just for fun as a test? Maybe. But, you know, maybe they didn't feel like they had any reason to do that up until the, the clock test. So I guess for me, it's just this is obviously a sad story and, and both a happy one because she does have a happy ending. But mm-hmm. to your point, it sort of oversimplifies it for people who have who might be on both sides of the spectrum, people yeah. who might have serious illnesses, but maybe haven't gotten a diagnosis that's been accurate for them or for people on the mental health side who wish they had a simple explanation for what they were experiencing, but don't. Once again, it's tough. Yeah. It's so tough. Okay. We, uh, we got through that, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to do our segment, Mike reacts. There are fascinating things from all corners of the internet. Internet, 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 internet. Ryan unearths bizarre stories, both from inside and outside the world of mental health. Health, health, health. How will Mike react? How will Mike react to these stories he has never heard before? Four, 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 four. Only time will tell until, only time will tell until Mike reacts. All right, Mike, for our second half, you know, and I mentioned this up front, but part of my frustration was that it felt like Susanna was having what felt to me like very serious symptoms, but was not super inclined to see the doctor until she was experiencing essentially signs of a stroke, right? Like numbness, um, uh, confusion, some really, really serious things. Yeah. So this, this sensation, this realization reminded me uh, of some articles that came out at the end of last year and earlier this year documenting the phenomenon that millennials, which includes Susanna and includes us, we are around all the same age. Okay. What's the millennial range? So basically, we are the oldest. So it's like born after 1983 up to the point of, I want to say like 92 or 95. Oh, wait, does that make me not a millennial? Because I was born in 83. No, you are a millennial. You are an old okay. millennial. Yeah. Uh, oldest of the yeah. old. Yep. Um, sorry, sorry to link you to this wonderful generation. So it reminded <laughs> me now Susanna has, as far as we can tell, a primary care physician. But what appears to be true about millennials, and I'm, I'm reading from an article here titled Millennials Ditching the Doctor, What's at Stake? And so I, I just said that, which is millennials either in many cases don't have a primary care physician or don't see one, or just basically rely on, you know, sort of medi-merge type places where it's just like, oh, mm. you know, I'll see whatever doctor at the place around the corner. The, the urgent care. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's a problem. So this is like a thing where millennials don't go to the doctor. Yes. So I don't know. So first, let me ask you, is this something that you can relate to? Uh, No. Okay. Because I know, I know a lot of people... I won't put anyone on blast, but I know a lot of people where this is definitely true. I would say it's like, I don't go get like my checkup once a year. Okay. Why not? Why not? So why not? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I go when I have like the flu. Okay. But I have a primary care or I did until he changed practice. So actually I don't have a primary care right now. He changed practices. Sure. Okay. And... (laughs) But, you know, um, flu, feeling sick, I go up there. I guess, yeah, no, I don't like routinely go. No, it's not like a routine. I don't, I don't like go, hey, am I doing okay sort of thing. Right. So, and it's interesting that you say that because a doctor in this article, Dr. Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but Dr. Niket Sompal. That's not how you say that. I know. I'm sure it's not. He's a, an adjunct assistant professor at Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine um, in New York. And he's talking about why he, according to him, thinks that millennials don't go to a primary care physician. And he says, I think there are a few reasons. I think the primary one happens to be access of access to care. We found that millennials tend to want to have access to care right away. They want it immediately and they want to be able to see a doctor quickly. This is true. So I can definitely identify with that. Yes, um, absolutely. I, I had a physical scheduled a couple months ago and I was 15 minutes late. So they canceled it. 
And oh my. I said, I said, okay, you know, I was, I was doing chores or I was on a Skype call or something. So I was exactly 15 minutes late, which is their limit. I said, okay, like, fine. I get it. It's your rule. When's my next available appointment to see the doctor? And is it's it four weeks. Uh, no, it's next Monday. So I was three months. Oh my God. Was the next now, now to be fair, that's to see my doctor. I could have, I guess, seen other doctors at the practice. If but I really that's wanted ridiculous. To. But yes, exactly. It's ridiculous. So as a millennial, don't take that many patients <laughs> on. I don't know. I don't know what the reason for that is, but, but I was frustrated with that. And I think it's exactly this feeling of like, sorry, there's no one else in this waiting room. Why can't I see the doctor right now? So I definitely uh. identify that one. But I think the other one, and you kind of spoke to this, is this feeling of, so the, I'll quote the doctor, when they, meaning millennials, when they feel well, they don't want to go to the doctor and they don't. So when they feel unwell, they're like, I want to see a doctor right away and not wait for weeks for an appointment. Yeah. So basically. That's how it should be. Well, well, so not the feeling well part. I'm a huge advocate for yearly physical, partly because as a mental health person, that's a lot of times when doctors catch mental illness issues. But, but all they do is knock on your knees and like no. tap on your chest. Well, not stuff. if they're a good doctor that should be asking you questions like, how's your mental health been? Have you been stressed? Have you been sleeping? Like they should be running through those things. Okay. Well, then my yearly checkups would be ridiculous because I would just be like... My mental health is weird. <laughs> right. Well, but assuming, assuming you would already be in treatment and the doctor would be able to say, okay, you know, how's your medication? Is everything okay? And if that was not the case, then you'd be able to get follow-up care. Like that's how the system should work. Right, right. So I'm an advocate for the yearly physical. But to the, to the larger point of, you know, millennials not having primary care physicians and, and looking at Susanna's, you know, problem, it's, it's a huge danger, right? That people could be skipping the doctor's office and opting for urgent care instead. You know, it's, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of possible things that people could be missing. Basically. I, I absolutely agree with the primary care thing. Um, I, I did say that our primary care just changed practices, but we were with him for like five years. Sure. Yeah. Right. And so he knew us. Mm -hmm. And so w whether or not I was there for a checkup, like, he would still ask me questions when I was sitting there with my son who was there for a shot or whatever, yeah, you know? Sure, yep. So he knew us. So he, there'd be a likelihood that he could spot something he maybe thought was going on or mm -hmm. be like, Hey, are you feeling good? Actually one time he even did a, a flu swab on me when I brought Great. my son in. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. I, so I think that's important. And, you know, Think about the things that get checked up on in a, in a general uh, yearly exam, right? Now, they should be doing, obviously, blood pressure, um, eye tests, ear tests. And as I mentioned, they should be doing some questions around mental health. But even things like, presumably, again, with your yearly test, you should be doing some blood work. And if you're doing that, I mean, you know, just to be honest with me, like, at times I've been, like, not fully pre-diabetic, but basically like, oh, we have to keep an eye on this. So you're going to get a blood test again in three months to make sure your levels have normaled out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like, oh, if if someone is diabetic or pre-diabetic and they're not having their yearly checkup and their their system could deteriorate pretty quickly to the point of, oh, no, sorry, you you can't just fix this problem yourself anymore. Now you have to be on insulin. Right. So so then... So what's the solution for millennials to change the way they think about doctors instead of thinking it's this, uh, I need this appointment today and thinking about of a more of a plan of action? So it's interesting. I think a really good thing that's happening now is being able to see a primary care physician, and this is going to sound like ridiculous, but through an app, <laughs> you know, um, oh, yeah. so being able to have a virtual physical with a doctor to be able to just have that check-in, have those questions asked, send them the blood work, where you'll be able to get a lot of that important stuff addressed so that they could catch anything that might be yeah. emergent. So being able to see your your physician uh, through a virtual you know, a Skype meeting, basically, is a big deal. And I think the more that becomes normal, the more millennials are going to be like, oh, like I can just see it through my iPad in like 15 minutes. Um, or schedule it through my iPad and then see it 15 yeah. minutes on my break. Like, fine, I can do that. Yeah, no, it's super easy. My The last company I worked for had that on the insurance plan. Yeah, yeah. And I used it like twice for my son. Yep. And both times it just 
doctor came up. I talked to him over the screen, told him my son's symptoms. He was clearly like, okay, he has a sinus infection. And I went to the pharmacy and picked up antibiotics. Yep. Great. 10 minutes. And, and you're more likely to use that after that experience. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awesome, but then they changed it, and we didn't have yeah, it anymore. Yeah, right. So, so my <laughs> my hope to answer your initial question is that that becomes more the norm, especially for like rural areas, and as we said, like people that don't have a lot of access to care, people that might not be able to get second opinions, right? Right. That that becomes something that's more readily accessible for people. All right. All right. Okay, Ryan. I think it's time that we seal the deal and do our ratings. If you haven't listened to the show before every week, uh, or at least every week when I'm here, Ryan and I rate the show on a scale of one to five. Ryan does a one out of five for the accuracy scale, and I do one out of five on the critic scale. Ryan, what are we rating for accuracy this week? Yeah, so I guess what we're rating is how accurate is this portrayal of the medical system? How accurate of an experience is this? for someone who might have a lot of confusing symptoms, you know, are they likely to be diagnosed with all these different things and treated in the way that Savannah was? So okay. that's how and that's what, how I'm going to rate it. Okay. And what's your, what's your uh, star system? Uh, so um, out of five New York Daily Posts. All right. Because I, I mean, love the, the Daily Post shout out and it, it kind of fit what you imagined a sort of trashy newspaper would be. <laughs> I gave it a four, you know, and and people hear me throughout the episode kind of defend the medical system. Not that I think it's good, but that I understand why it's bad. So from that end, I think a lot of this was unfortunately pretty realistic. Now, my hope would be like her primary care physician keeps coming back and just saying like it's alcohol, it's alcohol, it's alcohol withdrawal, even though she's been monitored for weeks at a time by her parents and he just kind of downplays that. I think a lot of that probably would not necessarily be the case. So right. I, I'm I'm hoping that some of this was kind of kind of played for effect, but yeah, I hope so that's that, why yeah. I'm I'm rating it a four out of five. All right, four out of five hospitals. If you got something weird going on, it's going to be difficult. Yes, unfortunately. Okay, so I'm doing uh, the critic scale, meaning how much I like something, and I'm going to do one out of five. Take your pills. Okay. Because <laughs> the the mom screams. That's take what the your mom pills. says. Yeah. Yes. Take Trin- your pills. Trinity from the Matrix. Yes. Yes. She does. She's very adamant that she take her pills. So uh, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this a 3.5. Okay. For a movie. Okay. Uh, it, um, it, I mean, it was pretty one dimensional as a movie. You know, there was, there was no story arcs. Uh, I liked what it was. It's basically a biopic, um, but it, it just told this story from beginning to end, just the way we did the episode, just straight down a linear path. I, I did like it. I probably wouldn't ever watch it again. And that's always a 3.5. Okay. Fair enough. So there you go. Yeah. And I think that's, that's higher than what it was ratings from like critics and stuff. A lot of people did not like this movie. So, so there you go. All right. All right. Okay. Guys, we do have to get out of here for the day, but first make sure you stick around for Ryan's closing thoughts. And we do need to thank Kevin McLeod, who does all of our music on the show. Thank you so much. If you need to find Kevin and his royalty-free music, you can find him at Incompetech.com. And now for some closing thoughts on the 2018 movie Brain on Fire. First of all, take your health symptoms seriously. As we've repeated on this show, mental health is health. So that means whatever odd things you might notice about your sleep, attention, or mood shifts should never just be passed off as stress or normal problems. At the very least, inform your primary care physician about what you're noticing, and they can advise whether or not you should see someone to address those problems. When dealing with the medical system, it can be easy to become discouraged. Doctors and nurses are human too, and even if they aren't always as helpful or as empathetic as we'd like, it is important to stay calm and advocate for your needs as a patient. Sometimes this includes seeking out a second opinion, something you shouldn't hesitate to do if you have concerns about the care you are receiving. Finally, unlike Susanna, people often don't find the magic bullet they are hoping for that will cure what ails them. This is especially true for people coping with mental illness. Medication and therapy don't always solve the problem as much as they help a person cope with it. While that can be frustrating, focusing on what treatment can do for you and what you are still capable of can make a world of difference. Thank you so much for listening to our show. 
If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at poppsych101. We also love hearing from our listeners. So if you want to give us feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Poppsych 101 is on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.